Hello, everyone, and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Better Late Than Never, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Better Never Than Late, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. So for those of you that were missing us for the past week, for our loyal Patreon subscribers, we have a special bonus insert. If you are part of the freeloading class, then please feel free to engage freeloading protocol whereby you stick fingers in your ears and start shouting la 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 la. With this, we have a special cut audio that we have removed from previous episodes. This involves three minutes of my smacking my lips, Walker saying, uh, for five consecutive minutes, and all those great table-hitting sounds that you've been longing to hear. Here's a preview. Uh, yep. For all this scintillating content, you can find it at the end of the episode. I like the part where you can actually hear my drool hitting the desk. That was my favorite part. It's the quality of the microphone, really, that gets that full reverberation. We should really start live filming our episodes so we can do that in super slow-mo, that we can just start doing the zoom in as, as we're talking. It's so true. We're depriving our listeners. So we've decided to mix things up in summer hours. We're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about games we played in the past couple weeks. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game, which is going to be Street Masters Rise of the Kingdom. And our topic this week is going to be board game etiquette, which, like many such topics, is going to be a do-as-we-say-not-as-we-do kind of thing. More on that later, of course. But let us begin with the games we've played in the interim. What did you play while we were off? Well, it was two weeks. There's this, the list was too big, but I'm just going to talk about ones that I want to talk about. Clans of Caledonia. It is same, in the same vein of Gaia Project and Terra Mystica. They insert this great trading fluctuation market thing, and I think it's a great addition. I still would play Gaia Project over everything. I knew I know Gaia Project came out in 2017, but I don't think we got or I got my hands on it in 2018. I think it still is my favorite game so far this year. I, I thought you'd enjoy Clans of Caledonia. It is super similar. There's a, there's someone in our local group, every time I, I compare it to Clans of Caledonia to Termistica, he always says, oh, they're not really very similar. That's not, I mean, <laughs> everyone else that's played it is basically like, yeah, this is Termistica with a market system. And I like the market system, so that that's primarily why I prefer it over Termistica. But they are extremely similar games. They're very similar. And there's the, the delivery aspect, too, that... Not, I don't think either of them have, but that still. Is true. But other than that, it's they're almost identical clones. It's like almost like an expansion. You could almost call it if you know one of these two games got an expansion, it would be like this tacked-on market system or you know side things that you could do delivery things with, right? So that is one of the ways in which I prefer Clans of Caledonia because I do like when you have these orders, which are little short-term goals to accomplish. I always appreciate that. Terra Mystica has that to a certain extent with respect to the every round you're given point bonuses for doing specific things, but it always feels a little more artificial. And I do, I like it in your games when they have orders. We talked about this in the context of Marco Polo. It's nice to just have here, here are the, go- here are the goods you should be chasing for now. And if you want to plan for later, you can do that or not. You can just keep chasing orders. So I, I, I appreciate when you get those little signposts. Makes me feel less like I'm just building buildings for the sake of building buildings. Nice. What did you play this week? So <clears throat> this is sort of a meta comment on our podcast. Since the very early days of our podcast, and it was you that brought it to my attention. There were two games that just by virtue of the title alone, we knew we had to try. One of them was Seal Team Flicks, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. I've parenthetically gotten in a couple more games in the interim. Stand by everything we said. Wonderful experience. And then there was the other game, Starship Samurai. And privately, and I think we, we, we said this publicly too, we were pretty confident it was going to be bad. But because it was called Starship Samurai, we had to try it. It was, exactly. a, it was a cast iron necessity. And we finally tried Starship Samurai. Why, why, don't you st- why, why don't we start with your observations about the game? 
Well, I think after I read the description and and what some other people said, it just it delivered what they said. And at first, I thought, you know, with the right kinds of people and in the right atmosphere, this would be a great game. But I've sense you can say that about any game. So I'm going to pull that back. And I think with the right kind of people in the right atmosphere, you can have a good experience with Starship Samurai, even though it is a terrible game. It's one of these, you know, guilty pleasures that we might talk about one day is like games we know are bad, but you still, you know, pull out, you know, for silly fun. So we definitely had a really good experience playing it because all of us were just ragging on the game and no one was taking it even remotely seriously. And yeah, I've had a number of very, very good experiences playing bad games with every when everyone at the table knew that it was bad. But the thing is, I didn't even find it freewheeling enough to be a sort of wild take that experience. You know, when I play a game like we didn't play test this at all, or when I play a game with crazy card counters and, and what have you, yeah, sure, that can be fine. But Starship Samurai was just, it felt like small ball, first of all. The, the, you know, the stakes weren't really significant anywhere. You're nudging things up tracks, and those tracks give you income, and that's more or less how you score points. But there were a number of usability issues that really pull you out of the experience. If you're going to play a dumb game that's wild and free-willing, then it'd best at least be smooth. And overall, Starship Samurai, you know, it's got a very low barrier of entry. It's a relatively simple game. But ultimately, the usability issues pulled me out of it to a fair extent. One of them was that everybody has these really quite nice-looking, both in terms of design and execution, giant samurai mechs. And that is indeed what sells the game. And they are they are as nice or nicer than, than I expected. But the stats aren't anywhere on the machine. So you have to constantly be asking everybody, okay, what does this guy do? What's his power? What's his special? What's his force? What does he do in a fight? And there's no identifier as to who owns what. That's right. You pick them at the beginning of the game, and they're yours for the whole game. So it's not as as though they switch hands or anything. And they're constantly moving around, and it's really hard to keep track of who owns which robot and what each one does, like you said. So it's really hard to eyeball looking at a place who's winning what. And that really is unpleasant. And some of the cards are appropriately stupid. There's one card called Samurai Surprise, which is great. It just says, bring your big samurai mech into the fight. And that can have a huge impact and crazy things happen. Everyone laughs and it's called Samurai Surprise. But then there are a whole bunch of ones that really just aren't very satisfying. There are a couple cards that cost you points and then basically just cost another target of your choice a whole whack of points. That's not especially fun or satisfying. I mean, if you're going to have a, a free will and take that game, you, you probably don't want it to have that much element of kingmaking and or hurt feelings. And despite all this, it really is kind of a relatively pedestrian, procedural area majority game where you don't really see big wild swings and any, nothing really fun happens. Like, oh, I, I wipe you out. I, 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 I win this fight after all. It's like, oh, okay, you nudge up this track. Yeah. And I found there's like no strategy. I compare it to Ascension and there's a Lord of the Rings deck building game, you know, where you buy cards from a pool in the middle where you might as well just close your eyes and put your hand down because the game state is going to change so much by the time it's your turn again. There is no sense trying to plan ahead to do anything you know you put a bunch of troops down you do this you do that by the time it's your turn those troops are gone your guys have been moved you have different you know i mean it's one of those games where you just wait till it's your turn and try to recover from whatever you've got left yeah we might have more to say about starship summer in the future maybe not it was more or less the quality of that i was expecting <laughs> and and for context I, I think i should point out and this may indeed indicate to you that you should really try starship samurai i haven't really liked anything that the designer has ever done the designer's isaac vega he's done a bunch of work for plaid hat he's done ashes he's done uh, city of remnants with jonathan gilmore he did the dead of winter games 
and I haven't liked any of them. I've I've routinely disliked all his work. I found the artwork compelling, the theme potentially interesting, even a surface description of the game possibly intriguing, but they've always fallen flat. So if you love yourself some Isaac Vega, then by all means, go go ahead and give it a shot. But I've just I've never really enjoyed anything he's done, and Starship Samurai was no exception. All right, I finally got Nirishima Hex back to the table. I know we gush about Shadespire being the best two-player game, but for quick setup, quick play, easy to learn, Neoshima Hex is something you definitely have to try if you haven't already played it. I can't really say much more. I know I've talked about it before, so I don't want to go on about it too much more. There's like over 12 different unique armies that all have their different play styles, and the art is very interesting. It's like a post-apocalyptic punk death laser robot initiative fight. It's very interesting. And it always flows smooth. There's never any rules, discrepancy. It's nice, basic, easy. I really like my Neoshima Hex. What armies did you play this time? We, I finally got all of them. So I finally got to play ones I hadn't been able to play before. And that is the giant plant thing that grows out and you put plants around. And the new uh, Death Breath with the zombies. They have a very interesting mechanism where... Uh, you want them to sort of die and you put them into a pool instead and then you have an ability that brings them back from the dead and you mark them as being brought back and they get a whole new set of abilities uh, if they've been brought back to life. So that's pretty neat. I got to try a game called Helopagos. This is by Gigamic. It was put out last year. This is a 3 to 12 player game. I think that player count gives you a certain indication of what the game is like. It is a game about people who've been shipwrecked and about trying to build a raft, keep yourself fed, and escape the island. And it's one of those semi-cooperative games-ish. It's not a 1v-all game, and it, there's no traders involved. It's just you constantly have this pressure to put your own survival above the survival of the group. And it's very organic. It's a very rules-like game. And it's the kind of thing where everyone will start subtly pressuring you to use your action to help feed the group. And if you go off and do something selfishly, people will remember because if you are short on food in Galapagos, you just vote on who starves to death. If you're short on water, you vote on who dies of thirst. And it's great. It's very quick. It, too, has lots of crazy take-that cards. But it's very, very smooth and fun. We played uh, twice in succession, actually, and I almost never do that. I think they've cut the balance quite right. People only started dying very near the end of the game. And... Things always felt tight, but there were never massacres. So very often in games like this, I often find that often they, you know, they, they dial the challenge too light and everyone survives. There's no real tension or they make it too rough and someone dies in the second turn. And that's not that's not great. There's a variant in Halapagos that we played with whereby if you're dead, you can still vote. So at least you're involved in the game. It kind of lessens the sting of player elimination. But I was quite pleased. It was exactly what I wanted it to be. I'm looking forward to playing with, you know, truly large groups of people and seeing how that works, especially as an alternative to, you know, the late night, 10 of us around the table. Let's pull out codenames again. I love me some codenames. Or Coyote again. Or Coyote again, yeah. I mean, we both like those games a great deal, but you and I both thrive on variety, and I quite enjoyed Jalapagos. It was cute and deadly all at the same time, and so I recommend giving a shot if that's the kind of game you are into. What else Playwalker. Uh, the last one I'm going to talk about is Azul. I opened up the fridge and there he was. Seriously though. <laughs> um, finally got to play Azul. There is no game. There is only Azul. So I finally got to play Azul and I think, I don't know, It's the game is fine. It's, you know, it's light. It does its what thing. It's just, I think because of all these awards and all the hype that it's got, I was expecting something more. There really isn't much there. You take your tiles, you 
put them on your sheet and they slide over and you score your tiles. And <laughs> then the music starts, everyone stands up, you switch chairs and you sit back down again. I don't know, you played it as well. What What do you think of Azul? I think you're right. It's a fine, light drafting game. It is one of the many, many games where after playing it, I would say, why did I not play Fairy Tale? Which is true of many games, including other highly regarded games, such as Seven Wonders and other similar games like that. I've never really liked Michael Kiesling's games. I've never really loved them, I should say. The, so the Mask trilogy I enjoyed, but it never really made me uh, think that it, that it was brilliant. And indeed, Azul is very, very light drafting game. And I I was I was disappointed by how little spatial element there was. If you're going to give me these beautiful tiles and tell me that they need to slot into a geographic grid, you know, I might expect something along the lines of what Sagrada does in terms of, you know, correct placement of this goes here and where. But no, all your placements are more or less fixed. Insofar as you are able to place your tiles in Azul in your grid, they go in specific places. There's an advanced variant where that's not true. We didn't play it that way. Maybe that way is great. I don't know. But ultimately, I, I expected that it was one of those overhyped games, and uh, I wasn't shocked that it was. But I was somewhat amused, however, to see your fury at the game. You seemed... This is one of those times where you played and you just seemed angry. Well, it's a, like I said, I didn't really read the rules beforehand or a description. I just saw these great-looking tiles and this grid, and I thought it was gonna, it might be this cool, like, Euro-y type... And it was just, it was nothing. It was just. <laughs> and, and that's the other thing, the discrepancy. Like, it says it's advanced, but is it the advanced side? Because the basic side, you have limitations of where you can put it. So you'd think it would be harder. Where the other side, you can put them wherever you want. So maybe it's advanced because you can blow your score away into the water because you can put them wherever you want now. But the, for the difficulty, I can almost. The possibility of putting yourself into a corner might be higher. I don't know. I don't want to speculate too much about this game mode that I didn't try. Yeah, that's exactly. That's all I have to say about Azul, the award-winning, fantastic, <laughs> tile-laying game. It is awfully pretty, though. It is. It looks great. Yeah. And and I'm so glad that I got to play it because I yeah. saw the giant version, and I saw all the awards and the buzz, and I said, I was almost like poised over the click button. I might as well order this thing. It's doing great. It's going to be great. Thank God I didn't. <laughs> yes, gaming is a mental illness that causes you to lose money. It's true. I get to try Fog of Love. Fog of Love is a game that aspires to recreate romantic comedies, and I admit that when it comes to a certain class of romantic comedy, I very much enjoy them. You know, everyone likes Groundhog Day. I also like movies like Stranger Than Fiction or Seeking a Friend at the End of the World or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Anyway, certain class of romantic comedies I thoroughly enjoy. And I will say that Fog of Love does a very, very, very good job of giving you scenes that are reminiscent of kind of romantic comedies in terms of how relationships evolve. I'm not going to say too, too much about it, but I will say the following two things. Number one, it proceeds in a sort of scenario basis where new cards get introduced in the system as you proceed into scenarios. And I played the high school sweetheart scenario, uh, which I hoped was going to take place in high school because I also have a weakness for love triangles in high school uh, shows. <clears throat> guilty pleasures, but no, it's just you met in high school and then you have a relationship as adults. And what's very, very creepy about the early scenarios, and I found this deeply disturbing, is you are unable to break up with the other person. That is not a thing that can happen. And so no matter how badly things are going, you know for a fact that you're going to be with this other person for the rest of your lives, and that just creeped me out. Welcome to reality. <laughs> <laughs> it was... I mean, suffice to say that in the game that we played, and it produced wonderful little moments, uh, our partner, uh, the, the person we were playing, quote-unquote, with, in an act of desperation, in the middle of the game going really badly, they proposed. And we essentially played a counter card, which was change the subject. 
So we did not. We didn't answer the question. It was basically oh, like, harsh. "Will you marry me?" And our character's response was, "What are we having for dinner?" And it was wow. just never brought up again. Anyway, so you, it's hard to fault a game that can produce moments like that. There were lots of little good moments. That having been said, allow me to say my second thing. I felt that there was a tension between the game as role playing exercise and the game as game because in this, in the game of Fog of Love, there are points, there are victory conditions, there are little objectives. And sometimes these are flatly at odds with the most compelling narrative or the narrative you want to tell because it's just that's just the mood you had or the narrative that makes sense for your character or the narrative that makes sense up to this point with the character. And those moments of tension I did not like. It really made me feel like no matter what I was going to do, I was going to be playing the game wrong. And I hate those moments in games. I hate, hate, hate it. And it really made me feel like I could choose to either have fun or take the game seriously. And again, that's a sort of tension that I that I don't really like. So as a role-playing exercise, I thought it was really cool, but in that case, just ditch all the games, uh, the, the gamey elements, and then you're playing uh, a game masterless role-playing game, which I really enjoy. And I think Fog of Love could be slightly retweaked into sort of a, a module for any one of the narrative role-playing game systems that that exist. And that reminds me, we should probably play Durant's again or, or Fiasco or something, because we really enjoy that stuff. And uh, that was Fog of Love. Lots of good writing, really interesting stuff. It just felt like it doesn't really know what it wants to be. It also seems like it went a little long. Well, that's because we were playing with four. So it's a two-player game where you can play with teams. And when you're playing with teams, both players have to read all the cards and both players discuss what they want to do. I really think that if we were playing it with two as opposed to four, the time might even just be slashed in half. And so a four-player game with new players was roughly 120 minutes. With a little more experience, it would probably be down to 90. And with two players, I could easily see people knocking it out in 60. Now, that having been said, there are longer scenarios, so that obviously depends. Gotcha. I just want to tack one other thing onto the games we played, uh, segueing from ditching like the scoring system in order to have fun. We had a family night last night where we played both Skull, which of course Skull went great because Skull's an amazing game. And then we also played When I Dream. Mm. And so far when I played When I Dream, I've just poo-pooed the, you know, the scoring thing. It's like, whatever here, you know, I like grab a yeah. handful of scoring points and throw them out. But someone we played with insisted that we play with the points and, and, and it did exactly what I thought. It just turned into a game instead of just a fun experience and where people are like counting points and, you know, where, you know, I suddenly, even me, I like, I looked gamer took over and I looked down points and it was just like, and it's like, no, I like from now on, I'm not going to play it with points anymore. And well, and that being said, I don't think we've played a full game like all the way around. And we got a full game in last night and it was and it was even though with that point problem it still was a fantastic experience. That's why I really do appreciate those lighter, quicker games where you can play it at, with the rules as intended with all the quote-unquote competi- competitive elements and like Cockroach Poker, like Skull, like those other lighter games. Even games where it's impossible to take it competitively at all, at all, at all, like Coyote. Coyote is so obviously arbitrary and wild that if you get knocked out because you had the times two on your forehead or the minus ten or whatever, then yeah, sure, you lost. <laughs> yeah. it's, but it's not a big deal. Yeah, the point, the moment where there is a scoring system, especially where the scoring system gets a little bit too involved you know it's like well if you're this role it's five points minus the lesser and all these other things that automatically triggers some instincts as gamers that just kind of undercuts the experience true but that being said if if if, they, if it wasn't in the rule book then it would seem like pointless of what your role was and what you're doing just the fact that it's there I hear you. You know what I mean? It's but that, that's such a weird thing. It is, but that's why uh, I think it really, sometimes you have to have the discretion. All Like when we played When I Dream, and this is true when we're playing with hardcore gamers' mind, we just ignore the points, more or less. 
You explain how points are scored at the beginning, you remind people when it is, but at the end of the game, nobody declares how many points they have. That's right. You have your little pile, and that's fine, and you can get a sense of how well you're doing in any given round, and if you really, really care, you can look over and see that your little pile is higher than anyone else. You know, I used to think that I was a competitive individual because I, you know, took scoring systems seriously, but really, I've met lots more competitive people here, and I'm perfectly willing to play a game like Hero Dream and say, yeah, the points don't matter, but here's what you're trying to do. Finally, we played Goa. Goa is a game from 2004 by Rudiger Dorn. I really, really like the games of Rudiger Dorn. Uh, I'm a big fan of Louis XIV. I'm a big fan of Goa. I'm a big fan of Jambo and his other stuff. Goa was released during the sort of heyday of Euros where it's like first we do auctions and now we do some actions. This is exemplified by probably the most well-known game in this design space, which is Princes of Florence. But I think that Goa is much, much, much better. I really like how the auction mechanic works. It's a system whereby there's this grid of tiles and people select what they're going to auction off. And if you win the tile, you pay the bank. But if somebody else wins the tile, they pay you. So the economy gets really interesting. The actions are relatively straightforward. It's mostly just about upgrading tracks and getting more efficiency. So it's a pretty standard Euro efficiency thing. But it's done really well. I really love how the auctions drive everything. And I, I'm very, I, I do love me some auctions when they're done really well. And I think Goa does a great job of it. And I have to say that as far as Euro efficiency games go, Goa has aged very, very well. There have been two editions now. I think they're both mostly the same. The newer one only adds slight modifications to it. It's sadly out of print, which is a shame. But if you're into old Euros like that, then Goa is, is worth a look. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to playing it again. I only played it once, so I don't have much to say. I thought you said you liked the grid mechanism. I think that could have been more streamlined. It seemed to add yet another mechanism that didn't need to be there, like strat- you know, strategically picking which tiles went next when I thought maybe just a, you know, a linear line and just picking the order would have sufficed. I don't know. Like I said, I need another play to see if it really mattered that much. I wouldn't say it's crucial, but it does give you a little bit of settled control over what the economy is going to look like. You it do does, have a certain degree of control just... over what what people downstream from you will be able to sell. I agree, but I'm just wondering if the time it took to you know suss that out and the, the fiddliness of it, if it paid off, that's all. Fair enough. So let's talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. So we've talked before about Quartermaster General on this show. We're both big fans of the system. Quartermaster General has a new game coming out, Quartermaster General The Cold War. It's on Kickstarter right now. This is a three or six player game where there's basically largely the NATO factions, the Warsaw Pact factions, and then everybody else. And each of those teams can play to one or two people. This was originally going to be an expansion to the base game of Quartermaster General, but now they've said, you know, screw it, it's going to be a standalone game. Full disclosure, I've pledged. And I'm looking forward to it. I have my concerns. It looks like it is going to be yet a further step up in complexity. Just as a sort of recall to our feature discussion of Quartermaster General, there was the base game, which was World War II. Then there was a slightly more complicated four-player game about the Peloponnesian Wars. And then there was a slightly yet more complicated than that five-player game of World War I. And now it looks like uh, the Cold War is going to be yet more complicated than that one. That's just based on my reading of the rules and looking at a playthrough. And I'm not sure how much more this system can take. I'm worried that this might be the bridge too far, things where it get a little bit wonky. Some of the core fundamental design principles of Quartermaster General have been changed for the first time for this game. Anyway, I'm cautiously optimistic. As I say, I've got my concerns. If you enjoy the system as we do, you can go check it out on Kickstarter now. How many players is that one? Well, there are three factions, and each faction can be played by one or two players. But like any other Quartermaster General game, you can mix and match and and, and swap up. But we, we basically never play Quartermaster General except by the quote-unquote ideal number of players anyway. But now, if you have all the games of the system, at this point, you'll have a game for every player count from three all the way to six. Nice. 
I'm wondering if that's maybe they, why they made it a little more complex, because now you only have three people waiting their turns, whereas if it was a six-player game and it was more complex, the flow that is Quartermaster General would be lost. Maybe. We'll see. My news is about, as the time of recording this, Simon's new Kickstarter masterpiece, Death Will Come Again and Die, James Bond... We- Death will come again. I don't think you get to make... Die, die, die. You don't get to make this joke again. You already talked about this. I get to do whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> it's my freaking microphone. It is your It is um, your microphone. This is your show. <laughs> but, you know, part part of the sting of that justified critique goes away if you're the one who keeps bringing it up. But I, it's so foolish that it's just... It's so over-the-top silly. That, anyway, long story short, you need to check out these pictures because the size of this Cthulhu beast that they're proposing is going to be a Kickstarter... Cth- exclusive is going to cost you about, I don't know, what, $150 shipping alone to bring this thing to your door? Quite possibly. Like, where are you going to, like, some, like, I read a comment, it's like, where am I going to put this thing? It's right, where are you going to put this thing? It is, we've made jokes before, everyone's made jokes before about the size of, you know, FFG coffin boxes or things. Eric Lang literally tweeted a picture of this miniature next to a baby, and it was bigger than the baby. It's bigger than, yeah, you, you wouldn't, you would not believe it until you see it. You think we're talking big, just, you know, triple the size of what you think. This thing takes up half a table. I'm just I'm just lucky that they didn't pull this crap for Blood Rage. Because if they'd pulled this crap for Blood Rage, I'd said it before and I'll say it again. If they'd offered a Jormungan to scale, or if they'd offered some absurd like world tree base for the board and asked $500, I might have given it to them in a fit of insanity. But I don't need another miniature of Cthulhu. I've got Cthulhu Wars. I've got a giant Cthulhu there. I mean, it's not nearly the same size, mind you. It's a very impressive feat of engineering. I'm not a huge fan of the sculpt, but that's a matter of taste. So this is one I'll easily be able to pass on, at least that that miniature. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll pledge for the game. I'm not sure. Yeah, I want to read the rules. It's yes. yet another Cthulhu thing, and I'm going to be extra careful on this one. The models, like I said, look fantastic, but I've always been stung. I've always... It's because of Arkham Horror. It's this graduated... I love graduated decks. When you play Arkham Horror, you're drawing from the same monster pool. I know we're going off on a tangent here, but anyway. And... It always, it turned me off Arkham Horror, and I've never gone back to a Cthulhu game since. And I've just had this disdain for all of them. Unwarranted, I'm sure, but still. You like you liked Cthulhu Wars. True. Cthulhu as a theme is woefully overused. It's usually misapplied, I think. We'll see. As I say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the rules. I'm going to try to find out as much information as I can. I'm very skeptical of Rob Davio's work now. Eric Lang is sometimes great, but sometimes solidly mediocre. And Rob Davio is uneven at best. So we'll see. Time will tell. On the continuing topic of something that always catches my attention of how hobby games are entering mainstream retailing, the graphic designer and artist extraordinaire Quanchai Moria, who most is probably his best known project at this point, is the third edition of Catacombs. He did all the art for the newest edition of Catacombs. He first came to my attention several years ago when he did a redesign of Ogre that was very, very appealing. I think that was back before he was a professional in the board game space. But anyway, his art can be seen in a lot of different projects now, and that's great. I really like his artwork. I think it's it's wonderful. He is going to have a version of the game at Target, and it's going to be a Target exclusive. The game is a co-op game, which is, you know, basically there are numbers and you're trying to get rid of cards. It's kind of like Dutch Blitz or Solitaire or what have you, but in a multiplayer co-op version. I think the name of it is Grotesquely Stupid. Any game that is basically impossible to find in the Board Game Geek database deserves to have their name changed. Previously, I thought that the, that the name Samurai was one of the worst offenders because there are literally six games simply called Samurai. Maybe more by now. S- seriously, go to Board Game Geek and search the game. You're not going to find it. It's just impossible. But anyway, 
This is going to be a Target exclusive sometime in the fall. I'm always keen on the you know the major big box retailers in the whether in the US or Canada getting more good hobby games and if it's going to especially if it's going to be a unique one with an art of an artist that I really like that's all the better so I'm looking forward to picking up a copy of Quantrai Moria's version of the game yeah the game is yet another one of these games that won a bunch of the Spieljar awards and did very well but I have never tried it so I'm hoping that'll be good the only award that matters is it finding itself a place on my shelf. Hey, there you go. What have I got left? I've got, guess what, Mark? I know you'll be excited about this. Terraforming Mars is going to get another expansion called Colonies. Whew. No, I see the alarm on your face. It's fantastic. I know. Don't leave yet to rush out and buy it. It's not quite out yet. But I think it looks very interesting. You're going to uh, be able to send colony uh, colonists out to all these different places. Yet another part of terraforming mars everyone's enjoying it except for a few uh, uneducated people and something that i'm looking forward to playing and that is terraforming mars colonies finally in the expanding universe of race for the galaxy which parenthetically is a good card-based tableau builder with actual you know player interaction and good choices and doesn't take two and a half hours. There is going to be a Race for the Galaxy board game called New Frontiers, put up by Thomas Lehman. This is a sort of return to form because originally Race for the Galaxy was kind of sort of Puerto Rico the card game almost. But then it became, then there was San Juan, which was something different. And then they redeveloped those ideas into Race for the Galaxy. And now Race for the Galaxy's got a board game. So it went from a board game to a card game to another card game to a board game again. And I'm very much looking forward to it. Thomas Lehman's work is always at least... He's one of those designers where it's always interesting. Sometimes it's a little too gamey for my tastes. But I really like what he's put out. He's put out a preview of New Frontiers on Board Game Geek. It looks really compelling and interesting. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens there. I'm also looking forward to the proposed uh, expansions for both Race for the Galaxy and Roll for the Galaxy. So I'm a big fan of all those games. And I'm looking forward to all the new content. Yeah, the graphic design and the layout for this new board game looks pretty interesting that's why i had it on my list as well i left the most exciting to last and that is uh how could it be more exciting than an expansion to terraforming mars well, let me tell you it's going to be a new Catan game Catan history rise of the incas hold on to your hat everyone wants this on their shelf some of the Catan histories have been have been kind of interesting i haven't played one in a while but the way they change up i i, I like how many seeing, do you own mark i own zero but i do find evolutions on a formula to be interesting if done well and the Catan uh, histories and the and even the themed ones they're almost never straight reskins they always do something it's true, kind right? of cool with it yeah. so i'm being over the top negative that being said stone age of Catan, i i had that in my collection for quite a while i don't have it anymore but i did hang on to it for quite a while because it was very interesting and unique so who knows but for those who love Catan, you get another one coming out soon i'm sure they were holding their breath i know and that's all we have for news and why it really doesn't matter. And now for our feature game of the week, Street Masters. Voila! Street Masters <laughs> was by Brady and Adam Sadler. They have their own company, Blacklist Games, which is basically a company meant to put out the co-op designs of Brady and Adam Sadler. These are twin brothers, and uh, they make thematic co-ops. I first noticed their work when they put out Space Hulk Death Angel, which is a co-op uh, one-to-six-player card game set in the uh, Space Hulk universe. They also put out the Warhammer Quest adventure card game, which is being retooled into uh, Heroes of Terranoth. 
I don't know. I have kind of mixed feelings about those games. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do in Heroes of Terranoth. I thought it was a lot of it was cool, but some of it was a little too procedural. But anyway, they definitely have a niche, and that is uh, thematic co-ops. And their latest one, which was Kickstarted, is seeks to be an emulation of a particular genre of video game that is basically the product of a bygone era. And th- those are these side-scrolling beat-em-up games where you have an infinite number of baddies to punch and kick in the face. I'm thinking of games like Double Dragon. I'm thinking of games like Final Fight, Streets of Rage, games of that sort. Which is strange because most of the visual touchstones of the art design... I'll, t- I'll, I'll have a, a couple of words to say about the art design later. But most of the visual touchstones are of 1v1 fighting games. You know, you're Street Fighter, you're Tekken, you're... But despite that, the game itself is a co-op representation of the sort of lots of minions swarming you and you trying to beat the snot out of them while beating up the boss. And that's that's roughly speaking the sort of what it's what it's trying to emulate. So why don't you tell us what we do in a game of Street Masters, Walker? Well, in Street, in Street Masters, you have your own character and he's a fighter, much like any of the Street Fighter things. He has his own speciality and... And different combos that you have to get off. So you have your own deck and you're trying to cycle through it to get the cards you want. You come onto the board. It's a board with a bunch of minions and crates and everything else. And then the minions, like you said, come flooding in. And you have to keep them at bay while you try to hit your objectives. And try not to die. And picking up loot along the way. uh, Making sure you don't die. Getting the blocks you need. That is Street Fighter. It's Street Masters. Street, that is. Street <laughs> Masters. Fair enough. It, it's a perfectly reasonable slip of the tongue. Well, let's address the elephant in the room, and that is the fact that as far as I'm concerned, we talked a little bit about this in the context of Clans of Caledonia, Street Masters is basically Sentinels of the Multiverse with a board. It's true. I have a large section on this list that is the similarities and differences between Sentinels. This, that's what I do is I compare, my thing is compared to other games. So I'm going to be comparing it to Sentinels of the Multiverse and Gaslands a little bit as well. Oh, interesting. I'll be curious to hear that. Now, we are probably going to spend a lot more time talking about Sentinels of the Multiverse on its own once Oblivion, the final expansion, which has been held up for 23 years. It's been Chinese New Year for 23 straight years. What can you do? I mean, what it, can it's... You do? Look, they, they, they closed the factory for 23 solid years. It's just, it's just a thing that happens. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. We're both fans of Sentinels of the Multiverse. And as I say, we've been kind of waiting to give it more of an in-depth treatment when there was new stuff to talk about because we are, of course, slaves to the new. And if it's published more than six months ago, we don't want to talk about it. Let me spend a, a little bit of time talking about why I think it's a little bit problematic that it's so much like Sentinels. I think... I've been thinking about this for a while, and I've mentioned this before. I think it would have been at least classy in the manual of Street Masters for for Brady and Adam Sadler to just give a shout-out to Sentinels of the Multiverse, saying, you know, special thanks to Christopher Bedell and all the guys at Greater Than Games. We really like Sentinels. We wanted to give our own spin to it, because structurally they're so incredibly similar. I think that the possibility of their having independently come up with the same structure asymptotically approaches zero. I, I would be shocked, shocked if they said that they'd never tried it before because it's they're so incredibly close in terms of so many structural elements. And I don't think it's necessarily impermissible to make a game this close to another game, but I think you should give at least a little bit of acknowledgement. Agreed. Are we going to let's go over some of these things? Like there's yep. the uh, environment. In Sentinels, you have an environment deck that, you know, where you're fighting, and as you cycle through it, it's going to, you know, has really cool integration to, you know, what you're doing and how you can act, 
based on where you are in Street Masters. It's the same sort of thing. It tells you what map to use, and 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 it does really cool. Like if you're in an office space, there's you know there's office workers trying to escape, or if you're weapons depot where you can pick up uh, crates that give you more damage, or it does a great job of that. There's a there's a deck for the environment. There's a deck for the boss. There's a deck for each character, and basically the structure of the game is everyone plays cards from their own deck, and the boss deck does terrible things to you, and the environment deck does, generally speaking, on balance, net-net, interesting things to everyone. It's up to the players to take advantage of it properly, and it has the same kind of activation sequence. You know, there are cards out in a queue, you activate them in order, and you pull a new one, and you do whatever the card says it does. Now, there are dissimilarities in terms of how the specific queue works in both Sentinels and Street Masters, but essentially the way the AI works works roughly the same. You know, the, the card generates a whole bunch of minions that attack targets or the boss that does various weird behaviors, and... The hand management feels just the same. What you do in your turn feels just the same. In Sentinels of the Multiverse, what you do is you can play a card, you can activate a power, and then you can draw a card. In Street Masters, you can play a card, you can do an action that is printed on one of your cards, and then you draw a card. You know, there are some, again, some exceptions, largely by virtue of the fact that Street Masters has has a physical map, a representation of where your minis are. And for the most part, I think that those differences are nice and appreciated. But again, the similarities are so pressing. And I found myself when explaining the game, especially to Sentinels veterans, it's like, how does this work? It's like, same as in Sentinels. And they'd be like, okay. And that made sense to them, and they knew exactly how to proceed. Yeah, the things I have different is the fact that it's all played on board. In Sentinels, it's cards only. In Street Masters, you do have an actual board that you move around to get adjacent to. Uh, the way it scales to player count in Sentinels, uh, it's mostly just the damage that's done. It'll say, you know, times the number of players, where in uh, Street Masters, it just multiplies by number of players the number of hit points they have. The fact that you roll a bunch of dice, no dice in Sentinels. Uh, in Street Masters, every character has a storyline that you can bring in later. And also there's campaigns that you can go through. No really such thing in Sentinels. And then it has this really... One of the mechanisms that I really love lately, and it had it in City of Kings, because when it's your turn and you flip up the the enemy deck and it's a minion, you put it in front of you, so it only activates at the end of your turn. Exactly the same as City of Kings, if you spawned a monster, you would take it in front of you, it would spawn at the end of your turn. And it really, you know, mixes up the player order and, and puts a lot more strategy into the game, because you can, you know, sort of plan out how you're going to deal with it until it's that player's turn again. And I really like that mechanism. Well, that's one of those ways in which mechanically I think Street Masters is superior to Sentinels and has learned from the lesson. The first printing of Sentinels, after all, didn't really have player scaling at all, period. It was just, you know, sometimes the boss just does damage to all the players. It was only in the reprint version, the sort of uh, extended edition, they call it, or the enhanced edition, where they added this mechanic where sometimes the boss would do, you know, 3 plus H damage where H is the number of heroes or what have you. So you get to do everyone's favorite thing, algebra. Whereas in Street Masters, in addition to the boss getting more hit points as the number of players goes up, everybody at the start of their turn draws a new enemy card which could be a boss doing a boss tactic doing something or more frequently in many of the decks just another minion so the number of minions multiplies roughly in a linear way with the number of players and you're right it really helps with the tempo and it also helps offload some of the responsibilities for just running the game system it's like well at the end of your turn activate these three minions that are quote-unquote your minions so i agree completely plus the time it takes like in sentinels the boss turn can 
be huge, right? He could have a whole lineup of cards and they all have to trigger and that sort of takes away from this huge boss turn. So it sort of just breaks it up into everyone else's turn instead of having a giant enemy turn in the middle of the game. They've done a very good job in Street Masters of making the AI very, very, very unproblematic. It's even an improvement over games like Gloomhaven. Gloomhaven, if you look on BoardGameGeek, you're going to find a billion questions, very reasonable questions about what enemies will do in various circumstances. You know, very often in rules questions for very popular games, I look at the question and I say RTFM, RTFM, RTFM. But in a lot of the AI questions in Gloomhaven, they ask them and say, huh, I don't know. That's weird. In Street Masters, it's bone simple. It's like advance towards the nearest enemy. It's like, well, is there a tie for nearest enemy? Eh, we choose. You know, the players get to pick. They've done a very, very good job in Street Masters making everything as incredibly simple as possible in terms of executing how these things various uh, work. I've never really had a serious question about how any of the enemies behave. And they don't, I mean, they don't behave tremendously differently. Some of them attack, then move. Some of them move, then attack. Some of them do much more if they're not engaged. Some of them get defense tokens in weird ways, etc. So there's a little bit of variety in, t- in terms of the enemies act, but nothing in terms of the increased cognitive load of figuring out, okay, which target has the most hit points, which targets have the least hit points, which target is five st- spaces away, but no more than, you know, at least three, but no more than five and stuff like that. So they've done a very, very good job of making sure that it's less mentally taxing and that the AI works really well and that dovetails nicely with how the player scaling works. Yeah, I'm going to use that as a segue to go into my Gaslands comparison because the flow is so great in Street Masters. We talked about this in Gaslands where we always wanted this post-apocalyptic car battling game and how Car Wars is too complicated, this other one's too simple... And this one, and Gaslands hits it perfectly right down the middle. And I think that Street Masters is the same sort of example where we've always wanted this fighting game where it's this big mass thing and it's equally, you know, complicated, but not too complicated. It's this, you know, not perfect. It's a, it gets, I'll talk about my bad points later, but still is the closest that we've had so far to this smooth running mass combat game. You know, you're, you're really right. I didn't know where you were taking this analogy, but I agree with you. I think it really executes uh, an obvious theme really, really well, and it gets that level of complexity just right. And it really also solves the, the multiplayer problem because all the, all the other competitive games like this, whether it's Yashima, whether it's any of the other battle games, we talked about this in the context of GKR, whether it's the upcoming Street Fighter Miniatures game, which I'm 99% sure is going to have the same problems, it's really hard to do multiplayer well. And one way to solve this issue is eh, just make it co-op and make sure that the co-op scales properly. And I think that Street Masters did a great job of that. And I agree with you that in, that just like Gaslands, it's just crunchy enough to give you something to hang on to, but it's simple and smooth enough that you can keep the game moving and things don't drag. Very well put. Thank you. All right. So that's all I'm going to compare to uh, Sentinels with. Do you have any other points, any other Sentinel points that you want to make? before? We... Uh, just one, and that is one of the things that really sells Sentinels, and I think this is a this is a weak point of Street Masters, is even though Sentinels doesn't have a campaign mode yet, and even though some of the characters are clearly kind of inspired by other characters, you know, there's there's a there's a Superman analog, there's a Batman analog, etc., etc. The universe of Sentinels really comes alive to me. I really find it a very compelling fake comics canon. I was shocked by how compelling I found it. 
Whereas uh, Street Masters, despite the fact that there's more flavor text involved in terms of the campaign mode and things like that, I don't find the world very compelling. It's it's fine, but it's all just visual homages. It's like, this is the Ryu stand-in. This is the Alex stand-in. This is the Natasha Romanoff stand-in. And that's fine. I mean, having again, having visual references are fine. It's just they, they just seem like caricatures. True, but I wonder if we once we play it more and we get to listen to all the different character storylines, maybe that it might come more alive to us. I've looked through a fair bit of the campaign decks and I, you know, I've, I've done my best, but, and Sentinels of the Multiverse grabbed me immediately in terms of selling the world. I don't know if, if your experience was like that at all, but when I first went into Sentinels of the Multiverse, I'm like, uh, fake comics canon. Cause you know, there have been fake, com- fake comics canons done before. I was blown away by how compelling it is. That's why I always my eyes always roll and clunk when people say, well, it's not Batman or Superman. I don't want to play it. And I'm just like, Dude, like, seriously? Yeah. yeah. But Street Masters, it's just, again, it's very clearly more just doing homages in a straightforward way. And that's fine. The one way it's not fine, and this we're kind of segueing into uh, to negatives here, the art is well executed, but it is what I would call tit-heavy. I don't really like how the women are represented. We're talking about massive bazongas. And I'm not a prude. It's just childish. It just doesn't do anything for me. And yes, yes, that is absolutely, quote-unquote, faithful to the theme. You know, the the poison from Street Fighter and from Final Fight does indeed look very much like the minion that is inspired by poison. It's just, come on, guys. You you can exercise a little bit of artistic authorial integrity. I'm wondering if it's like a momentum thing when they're doing spin kicks and stuff. It sort of counterbalances. Oh, you're right. You're right. Right? Or just the centrifugal force. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. That's what I'm wondering. I've said it before. I'm tired of being embarrassed by my games. I'm tired of pulling out a game like this in front of people who aren't gamers or just mixed company and just being like, yeah, I know it's, it's... I'm just a little tired of that. So I, I hope going forward that it's going to be a little bit less heavy on the, 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 the massive bazookas. All right. I'm going to cover some quick good points before we go into the bad. Every character is different. Everyone, they each have a very unique style of play. Uh, the block system is very interesting depending on, what kind of attack you do. You roll the dice, it's going to do damage, but you could roll some shields and you're going to get block tokens equal to the kind of attack you did, which you're going to use later to block same attacks against you. Can we talk about dice for just half a second? Because you're right. The dice are great. There are no misses, which is great. You get the randomization, but there's no misses. The worst thing that can happen as a result of rolling attack, and sometimes it's not even the worst, is you don't do damage, but instead you get a block of the appropriate type. You're never going to be looking down at your block tokens and saying, I wish I had fewer of these. That's right. They won't necessarily save your life, but they always come in handy. So the worst thing that happens to you is you get something handy. But you get the uncertainty and fun of rolling dice. Rolling dice is fun. Let's let's admit it in some context. I don't think that every game needs it, and I don't think that every game with fighting needs it, like a lot of people think. But I really like how it handles dice. It's I've never had a moment where I'm rolling the dice and I look at it and say, oh, well, that really sucks, except for a couple of exceptions. And it has an exploding six. And... I'm going to get this name wrong, but is it Battlecon? You can pull characters from Battlecon. Yes, there's a there are there's a crossover expansion that introduces three characters from Battlecon. It doesn't use any of the Battlecon components, but it just introduces characters there. There there are already it's it was a Kickstarter, right? So there's already a bunch of expansion. There was Legend of Oni, which every Kickstarter backer got. There's Twin Tigers, which is the the clear double dragon version where Adam and Brady Sadler put themselves in the game as the twins, which is kind of cute. I'll I'll give them full credit for that. And then there's the Redemption expansion, which allows you to play as the bo- the play the bosses as characters, which I'm a sucker for any time you get to play as a redeemed boss. That's just awesome. That's all good points. You have any good points you want to cover before we go into 
One final minor note, and I, I like how each game feels like there's a bit of an arc. You start off, you're overwhelmed, you look at your cards and you figure, how on earth can we ever win this game? And sure enough, sometimes you don't win, but by the end of it, you've gotten all your defense tokens in a row, you've got some permanent powers out, you're really chaining things well, you're comboing like a madman, and before, where you were struggling to do anything, during the last turns of the game, you're doing 12 damage over a single turn, and I like it when games get, give you that sense of progression over the course of a single session. All right, bad points. I think this game shines at two or three, and I think it is terrible at four. Terrible? That's strong. Way long. The time scales linearly with the number of players. That's absolutely true. And also, that being said, this could fall into the table etiquette thing later. I'm going to talk about it at a certain point, but I guess the game state does change enough that you can't totally plan your next turn out, but I think there is room there that it can flow faster, but I really think it shines better at two or three. I agree. I prefer it with those. It's even good solo. Solo is real quick because, again, it just goes up with the number of players. Four is not its best. At four, it can go 90 to 120 minutes easily, and I don't think there's quite enough there there. And it's better... This is a game that thrives on variety too, right? So it's better to be able to play a couple of sessions with different bosses in different stages than stay with the same setup for for the full 120. I agree. I should have segued with this one first because it goes off what you said before about how there's a a pattern to every game. And I feel as though it might turn in, it turns into a slog a little bit. Like, like you, like we talked about before you move onto the board and then in player turn, they're each going to draw an enemy, right? And if you don't defeat them, then on the next round of play, everyone's going to draw a card and they could be enemies. So the board fills up rather quickly. And then you suddenly get to this point where it turns into a little bit of a slog. There's quite a few enemies on the board. Eventually you clean them up, but it, it sort of bogs the game down a little bit in the middle and sort of drags the game on a little longer than it should. Reasonable. I'll go to the next one. Lots going on. How many times do we forget to forget a particular rule? More importantly, forget to draw an enemy card at the beginning of our turn because there's a lot of different things happening at the same time. There's, you know, defense tokens flying all over, damage flying all over. So you got to make sure, you know, you're on top of everything that's going on. It can be easy to miss some details. And I'll just I'll just point out a couple. One of them, I think, is unavoidable, and one of them is avoidable. The unavoidable one is just managing defense tokens can get a little bit tricky in terms of, you know, this, this defense token gets stolen, this defense token gets absorbed, this one gets discarded, this one turns into power, so I flip it over, and then I get a new one as a result of this attack. So you're constantly managing these defense tokens. It's not awesome. The second thing that could have been avoided, you mentioned that there are exploding sixes. Very frequently over the course of Street Masters, you'll be rolling three or four dice for an attack, and then one of them explodes. The game comes with four dice of each type. That's bad enough. What's even worse is that there are some basic minions, just level one, you pull off the top of the deck, that roll five dice in their attack. There's only four dice. Guys, come on. Should have been double the amount. Standard. I I would have forgiven them for five. Because five is the most that anyone rolls without any modifiers. Four is completely unacceptable. And it's not even just a convenience thing. Because again, you ha- there are these exploding sixes. You have to track these results and then keep rolling more dice. And you run out of components. And it's a simple, it's a simple enough thing. But you lose track and it's obnoxious. All right. My last bad point is, is that the characters that I played... They seemed a little bit the same. Like you wait till your turn and you have your, your, your basic move and a card that you can cycle. And I'm wondering if uh, through multiple plays it might get a little tiring. But, you know, that being said, you can switch around different characters and stuff. But I'm just wondering 
within each deck, and it seemed the same as for all the other decks. It seemed like they had their main attack, and they could cycle a card over and over again. So it was like, okay, this is my turn. I do the same thing I did last turn, just to a different enemy. Yeah, the character differentiation, I think, is good, not great. A lot of a character's abilities are driven by a certain type of card called Tactics, and these are the cards that give you permanent bonuses when you play them. There's not the same kind of radical character differentiation that completely drives a different style of play, as you might see in games like Too Many Bones or even in games like Sakura Arms. So I agree with you there. I don't think that the game ever really gets in danger of being too repetitive, though, so uh, so long as you keep the player count down and play proceeds briskly, because a lot of the variety comes not from the way characters work, but a lot of the variety comes from the fact that there's a whole bunch of different stages and a whole bunch of different bosses, and so then you have this, this combination of a little bit of variety in the stages, a little bit of variety of bosses, a little bit of variety of characters. Once you add all that into the mix, suddenly the game states are very, very different and the scenarios are, are appreciably different, but not so different that it starts getting too, too cumbersome. I agree with you that sometimes it's difficult to track what's going on and sometimes you forget effects. That's true in lots of cooperative games. A game like this, I think you want to keep it moving, keep the, keep the game pace up, make sure that things go along. I, I agree with your Gaslands analogy in that for the most part, it's gotten the balance just about right. One thing we didn't cover is the interaction between the characters. I know this is not a bad point, but and I think they did a really great job of of uh, letting the characters do stuff with each other. It's not as though it's my turn, I do my attack, it's your turn, you do your attack. There's abilities that let you, you know, you know, assist in defense or assist in attack or all sorts of different ways that you can combo off each other, and I think they did a fantastic job of that. Yeah, all told, I really do think that Street Masters does what it sets out to do quite, quite well. It captures a lot of the feel of these brawler games. It evokes a lot of the same kind of visual touchstones, sometimes a little bit too much of fighting games of that ilk and the 1v1 competitive games. It takes the formula that Sentinels established really, really well and puts a spatial element on it with a ma- on a map without bogging it down in terms of AI behavior. There's still a lot of effects to track, and sometimes it can get a little bit tricky, but overall I think it, it it's just on the side of manageable, especially if you keep the playtime up. If, if you play with three other slow players, I don't think I'd want to play Street Masters. But I, I've pulled it out solo a fair number of times, and solo it's lightning fast, you know, just... because the boss only has uh, a fourth of the hit points that the boss would have in a four-player game. And I enjoy exploring the other characters, even though, again, they're not as different as they could have been. It's not not striking. But I'm looking forward to seeing more combinations and seeing more uh, combinations of players. I don't have the Redemption expansion. I don't have the Twin Tigers expansion. Once they're available retail, I will track them down and get them because they do seem to introduce a a fair bit of new variety. So that's Street Masters, Rise of the Kingdom... We both enjoy it. It's not going to set the world on fire, but it takes a very it takes a formula we're both very fond of and tweaks it in ways that I think are mostly for the good, even though the universe isn't necessarily as compelling. And we'll have a lot more to say about this formula once Oblivion drops, which will probably happen in I don't know, probably after you're dead, but I'll probably still be alive. It's probably yeah. Okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll scatter the ashes of the Oblivion expansion over your grave. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. On to the topic of the week, which is table etiquette. Well, what do we mean by... What do I mean by table etiquette? What I don't do know, you mean by table Mark etiquette? doesn't know. What do you mean by table etiquette? I just mean, like, I am in constant drive to know what people think of what I do or how I can drive to make people's experiences in this hobby more enjoyable. And maybe there are things that I do that annoy people, and I don't realize it. So these are just things that I've put on my list that maybe I do or other people do that maybe rubbing people the wrong way, maybe 
might not go over well in other groups. Things just to consider. How does that does that how does that ruffle your feathers, sir? No, that sounds fine. I, I would just put it this way, and this is this is perhaps treating it slightly more academically than it should, but that of course is one of my great character flaws. So that is perfectly appropriate. Indeed, while you're playing Pandemic, people don't want to hear why the Spanish flu was called the Spanish flu uh, or in Quartermaster General where there's a Spanish flu card. Anyway, so etiquette is normally, in moral philosophy, it's usually identified as purely arbitrary. You know, what, what constitutes good etiquette in one context does not constitute good etiquette in another context. Classic example being uh, table manners. Table manners are exclusively arbitrary, but they matter a great deal. And it's that, it's that balance. The fact that it's arbitrary, but it still matters, right? The fact that we think that slurping your food is a little bit rude, but in other contexts, it's perfectly polite. Just to pick a, a weird example. Not that people take table manners very seriously anymore. But just because the rules themselves are arbitrary doesn't mean that they're irrelevant, right? That's right. And in the con- how does this relate to the context of board games? In board games... A board game environment is sort of a shared social construct. It's sort of an agreement that you and a bunch of other uh, people are going to engage in a shared activity. And any shared activity, whether it's eating a meal, whether it's a religious service, whether it's a political event, whether it's a movie, whether it's watching a, a sports ball game, whether it's even going for a walk or going for a march or playing lawn bowling, whatever, it doesn't matter. There are certain kinds of shared expectations that if you actively flaunt them, you're a douchebag. That's that's more or less it. So you have to identify what those obligations are. And as a result, because of that shared expectation and because you can undermine that activity by not adhering to those shared expectations, they get moral weight. So they're arbitrary, but they have moral weight. It's a very interesting class of things. Usually the refrain that I sometimes hear is like, oh, it's just a game. We're just doing this to have fun. It's like, yeah, absolutely. But For many people, and in many contexts, the fact that it is fun is parasitic on the fact that we are all living up to our shared social obligations. So, for example, this is just an example to prove the point before we get into the more more specific examples that we have. You may think it's fun to flip a board over and see the pieces fly all over the place. And that's cool. You want to do that? Go crazy. Just don't subject other people to it, right? And so if you flip over the board just to see the pieces uh, fly all over the place, and if I call you a douchebag for doing that, an appropriate response is not, oh, but games are just to have fun. That's where I'm coming from when I say that some of these expectations carry moral weight to them. Anyway, that was an overblown academic explanation. This is why I don't teach anymore. The other thing I always go by is just respecting other people's time. People have all sorts of things. 100%. People have all sorts of things going on. They don't always get to dedicate time to gaming that they need when they can dedicate those few hours they really want to enjoy them and i really think that it's everyone's job to make sure that those hours are enjoyable for everyone let's start drinking alcohol while playing board games i personally don't have a problem with this i did have one particular board game night back in the day when we played a lot of uh, 40k and whatever where there was a few younger children that showed up and i'm and uh it was big enough 20 to 25 people showed up every saturday it was big enough that we had a website, so I had a, a standards and code thing on the website, and one of them was that, that we would not be drinking on this particular night. As a non-drinker, I'm pretty indifferent to whether or not other, other people are drinking. I think the standard to me is just, just parasitic on this notion of taking other people's time seriously, and you just can't drink such that you're not able to play properly. Exactly. 
You're there to play the game, not to get drunk. And I, and in my experience, I've had far more games damaged by people spilling tea or water than they than they have by spilling alcohol. People seem to, when they have a beer in their hand, they seem to take very seriously the notion of spilling that beer for a variety of reasons. So I haven't had any problem with that. On a related topic, there's the issue of cell phones. And here I'm probably going to reveal my age. I was an early adopter of things like uh, personal digital assistants. I had a Palm Pilot back when nobody else did, and everyone looked at me like I had two heads. And now everyone's got a supercomputer in their pocket. But here's the thing. Taking a phone out is kind of like yawning. There's a neurological response where if you see someone yawn, you're more likely to yawn yourself. The moment one person takes a phone out, everybody seems to take their phone out. And the, the number of times when I've seen someone take their phone out literally as their turn is about to begin, that is grotesquely rude. That is really being disrespectful of everyone else's time because now we get to wait on you, check whatever. If it's an emergency, fine. Everyone understands that in extremists. But just the, pre- the, the, the routine with which people pull out their phones during a game irks me a fair bit. Am I alone in this? Not at all. I have exact same. The only time I ever pull out my phone is to look up a rule. I can't sure. remember any other time that I've looked it up pulled it out for any other reason except to check a rule or check an FAQ or or someone's you know expressed extreme interest in the game so I say oh look it's available or yep. it's always game or that it ha- it's always that game related next thing i have is riffle shuffling i have mm. no pro- i have no problem riffle shuffling your own game in case anyone knows this is where you you know half the deck bend them over you know flip them together just don't do this to other people's games unless, you know, you asked or you've seen that. Even if you've seen them do it, I've seen different styles riffle shuffling, destroying cards. And I really think it's a great rule just not to riffle shuffle other people's games. That's a really good point. I'm very bad at that. I should really be more conscientious of asking other people if I can riffle shuffle their cards. Thank you for reminding me of that. Kind of as a corollary to this uh, notion of, when, you know, talking about drinking to excess, you're not able to play quote-unquote properly. Allow me to elaborate what I mean by properly. Because I really don't like it when people start telling other people how to play. There's a balance to be struck. On one one extreme end, which is bad, is the person who wants to micromanage everyone else's turns. And this is true whether it's a, a co-op or a competitive game. It's like, you should really do this to do this thing and this other thing. This is the, this is the smart move to do. This is the best move. And then there's the other end where you're playing close to randomly. So on one end, you're telling everyone else how to play. On the other end, you're so disengaged with how, how to play. You're not even taking agency over your own turn. And the reason why I think that that's a problem is because I think, and this is, this is where things get, a, uh, some people disagree with me on this, I think that when you're playing a game, there's a sort of shared understanding that everyone is going to play, if not to the utmost of their abilities, but they're at least going to consider what they're going to do to some extent. And when people cease taking any consideration about what they're doing, and they start playing, you know, midway through the game, quote unquote, just to see what happens, even when we're like, well, no, I, we can explain to you what will happen. Just if... There are other ways to figure out what will happen. Why don't you take the, the move seriously? At that point, you're kind of wasting everyone else's time, and that, I think, is morally impermissible. I think that there's a, there's a shared acceptance that you're going to play to better your own position within reasonable expectations of the best of your own abilities. You're, because, pull, you're pulling everyone else out of the game. Exactly. And the worst-case scenario of this, and I've seen this happen, you know, typically people talk about this happening with couples, but I actually find it more often without couples. Someone's like, oh, I've just decided that this other player gets to win. And sometimes this is because they, they haven't really appreciated the king-making possibilities of the game. That I don't hold people. I try not to blame people for that. But when someone explicitly says, I have decided that this other player at the table will win, and then they spend all their moves trying to do that, that, I think, is, is spitting in the face of the expectation of the game. And I really I find that impermissible. I think it's just flouting the expectations that everyone has when sitting around the table. Agreed. My next keyword is planning out your turn. 
How many times have we seen it when it's someone's turn and they look up like a doe, like a deer in the headlights and say, oh, what game are we playing again? Even though game states fluctuate before it's your next turn, you can come up with alternate plans. Well, if this doesn't change, I'm going to do this. If this happens, then I'm just going to fall back on my next plan. Be ready for your next turn. Keep the flow alive. A friend of mine in Cambridge has a great quote. He says, misplays are interesting. Play faster. And he's absolutely right. And I'm very bad at this too. I often feel like I want to undo the move. I'm very bad at saying, no, no, wait, I'm going to do this instead. Or no, no, wait. I tend not to think too much on the outset, but then after I do a move, sometimes I'm like, hold on, back up. I'm going to change this part. So I should really stop doing that. I should just let the misplay stand. And let me just take a a corollary of this because you're absolutely right. Uh, Not paying attention when it's not your turn leads to analysis paralysis. And it's just this cascade disaster, right? Then everyone's taking too long. Then everyone starts checking their phones. And now no one's paying attention to the game and everyone's out of it. And that's fine. Sometimes a game should die. Sometimes you should stop playing a game. And I agree that we should be a little bit more sensitive to the notion of, you know, cutting it out when no one's engaged. But sometimes it's hard to do that. The the thing that's that's been bothering me more and more of late, which is kind of related to this, is not taking ownership of running the game. And this is primarily the case, though not exclusively, in terms of co-ops. This is the case where everyone knows how the game works, but basically all the cognitive load of running the game state is offloaded into a single player at the table, and that player's name is Mark. And I see this very frequently in terms of, look, if I'm explaining a game, I have to answer 100% of the rules questions. I have to be ready for that. I also have to be ready for running 100% of my turns and assisting with running everyone else's turns when they ask for help. But if it's the case that all the data is publicly available at the table, look it up for yourself. Don't constantly ask, okay, well, what's this guy? What's this guy? What's the stats on this guy? It's on the card. Take the card. Look and then read the card. Well, maybe that particular person, it was their turn, and they just wanted to, you know, rush the game state along and, you know, figure out what they were doing and then get some feedback from what was on the table. I, I don't know. This, that's just a hypothetical thing. You know, I'm sure it didn't actually happen, but I'm just saying maybe that's why. Yeah. Yeah. This is, and sometimes it's not particularly easy. We love Gloomhaven, but Gloomhaven has a lot of information to manage. And remembering which monster has which stats and how, how, how many hit points is a little bit tricky. But for the love of all things good and holy, you know, I think there's an obligation for everyone at the table, especially when they understand how it works. Because you know for a fact, there's going to be questions of comprehension. And whoever knows the game best is going to be responsible for that. But don't offload 100% of running the game to the person who knows the game best. If you're able to take some of that load, take that load. And I really appreciate it. I've noticed uh, there are some people of our acquaintance, and you do this too sometimes when you put when you put your mind to it. And I just expect that I'm going to have to go take care of something or I'm going to expect it to manage, manage that information. I just see out of the corner of my eye, someone's taking care of it and they're in the process of taking care of it. I love it when that happens. It makes me feel like they're taking my time seriously and it lets me play more of the game. The more time I'm managing the system, the less I'm playing. And that's one of the reasons why I really appreciate games like Street Masters, where all things being equal, it's relatively easy to manage the systems. And so I don't have to think about it all the time. And I don't have to constantly look up and say, okay, what, which target has the lowest HP and things like that. But all of this, I think you're absolutely right. All of this can be boiled down to respect everyone else's time. And that includes analysis paralysis, not staring at your phone. And again, more recently, I've really been noticing people not taking ownership of running the game and just letting, you know, pretending like uh, every game is game mastered by somebody. And that's not really the way things work. 
that goes in. I have something here that's called learning versus teaching. And with that, what I went, went for that was a little bit what you said is respecting the person that's teaching the game. And should the person teaching the game, if he's t- teaching it to all new people, should he take a a handicap in order to make it more fair for everyone else at the table? I don't know. I thought you were about to talk about another one of my uh, loathed behaviors, which I sometimes see, which is someone getting up and going off to get a drink or something. Well, that, was, the, that was all going to be part of it. That, in the, this in is the, just the first part. In the middle of a rules explanation. And that is such a blatant disregard for the time of everyone at the table because you know that you're going to have to have it re-explained. And that's a slap in the face to the rules explainer. That's a slap in the face to everybody else who's going to have to listen to it again. And that's just because you can't wait until the end of the rules explanation to go get your drink or whatever. Yeah, again, they're, they're, they're getting their drink. They're balancing their cubes. They're building little pyramids with their cubes. They're fiddling with the player aids. They're uh, asking questions on the player aids or on their components that you know you're going to cover anyway but they have to jump ahead and figure out you know what's on there instead of just being patient and waiting for the whole explanation and saving their questions to the end and i'm a little more sympathetic look i prefer when all the questions are held to the end again because i have a specific order in which i want to explain things but if look if people learn things differently if they want to know a detail earlier that that i'm okay with sometimes i snap at them but i snap at everybody it's a sign of affection but when they clearly in the middle of a rules explanation go and do something that not unrelated to the game that could wait. Like, yeah, if you want to go get a drink and it's not your turn, go get a drink. That's fine. I'll catch you up on what, you know, we'll catch you up on what you missed in the interim if it's the kind of game where you take sequential turns. That's fine. I have no problem with that. Don't wait until it's the start of your turn, though. Don't do it all the time and certainly don't do it during the rules explanation. On to something yet I'm, I am also, or just recently, I think not for the first time, but I felt it was out of character, is whining. It can be nominated as a strategy. And I know... A lot of people employ this strategy effectively, where if you feel as though you're being ganged up on or you want to seem as though you're being ganged up on, you start complaining and whining about the game state or whatever. And I just did this in the game of Rising Sun. I felt as though some people were taking the wrong actions. Some people were making the wrong alliances, you know, uh, giving gold away for nothing. And I was getting frustrated. And I spent the whole game bitching and complaining. And guess who won the game? I looked down at the board. Someone said they came in second. I was like, no, I came in second. I said, no, I won the game. So, so not only did I whine the entire game, but then I sat there and won. And I felt so bad. And it was such a like an asterisk win that I felt like a complete idiot. Allow me to say, Walker, with the benefit of this being recorded for posterity and put out over the internet, your estimation of your unaccountable, completely impermissible whining barely registered. I remember you saying a couple of minor things, and that was about it. Maybe you, uh, maybe I was just internally brooding maybe, for the whole game. <laughs> maybe, no. I know exactly the behavior you're talking about. I've done it myself, and this often dovetails with the, you know, someone doesn't play, quote-unquote, properly. You know, they make a move that's bad, and we don't want to tell people how to play, but we might bitch and moan if they make a move that we think throws the game to somebody else. And sometimes you're just wrong about that. Sometimes you're flatly wrong that they're throwing the game to somebody else, and that was the case. I understood the nature of the complaint. It is indeed the case that I, that specifically what Walker was talking about in Rising Sun, the table let me as the Fox Clan got two copies of Righteousness, the card that gives you points when, a, when someone dies. And sure enough, for some of the turns, I was able to pump that strategy. I was killing all my guys in that exceptionally unthematic way that Rising Sun allows you to do, where you ambush somebody and then ritualistically kill all your soldiers because, you know, theme. Anyway, but... You made one comment, and that was more or less it. You didn't repeat the objection every time I employed it, 
So I, I respect the fact, and I think it does you great credit that you feel bad about what about what you said. But and I agree with you that it is a toxic, toxic behavior. I just don't think you did it. That's all. I appreciate it. No problem. Next key phrase is playing to win versus playing for fun. And you sort of you sort of hit this point before when we were talking about when I dream, right? Playing to look at the score or playing just in general to have fun. When you read the table and you sense that either someone's winning so far ahead that everyone else is starting not to have fun, do you like ease back a bit? Do you sort of change the game state? Do you change your strategy? Do you do you try to make the game more fun for everyone or do you just keep hammering that strategy home in order to maximize your score? Okay, I don't think Here I Dream is a particularly good game through which to analyze this. But no, let, no, let, but let, I mean, I mean, you, we just we just referred yeah, to that. We just referred to, but yeah. but I'm actually going to keep using it as an example because, again, some people and I find I find this mind-boggling. Some people posit that there is a difference between playing to win and playing for fun, or they imply that if you play to win, that that is necessarily being hyper-competitive. And I disagree. Just wait. I just want to clarify this on a personal level. Like I agree with that. But I mean, as reading the table as a whole, having fun. But here, here's the thing. I think that when you are playing a competitive game, what you're entering into is a kind of ad hoc social contract where it is understood that everyone will be playing to win. Because I don't think that a game survives when people stop playing to win. And now playing to win doesn't mean doing whatever it takes to win. It just means taking your moves seriously. So for example... We were talking before about when I dream and ignoring the score. That's fine. That's cool. You can still be doing that, and you're still taking the game seriously. The point when you're no longer playing to win is if you, in the round of here of when I dream, want to give good clues, but then suddenly start giving bad clues just because you think of funny ones, right? You, st- you think of clues that are so funny and bad that you start doing that even though the game role that you've been handed for that round is to give good clues. That behavior is what I'm talking about. That, I think, is toxic. That is you flipping the table because you want to see things move. That is you making a move just because you want to see what the consequences are and you like like spreading chaos. That, I don't think, is okay. You're undermining the contract that makes the game possible and thereby wasting the time of everyone else at the table. If you want to ignore your final score, by all means. If you want to try to pursue strategies that aren't necessarily optimal but nonetheless are competitive... Because you want to, under some notion of fairness or giving someone else a chance, that may be okay case depending. But at the point where you deliberately start helping someone else or deliberately subverting the expectations that the game needs you to internalize, that's where I think someone's saying, oh, but I'm just doing it for fun, is being deliberately selfish and taking their specific notion of what fun is at the expense of everyone else's time. And I realize that saying it in this way makes me sound like some sort of, you know, fun-hating stickler, but I really don't. This is, when you're playing a game, the, the expectation is that the activity is based on certain structures. And by nature should be fun in itself, right? Right. And you know you have to take as given that other people, in order to have fun, are playing the game. And so you can't just start changing the game in the middle and then if if someone objects saying, oh, well, don't you like fun? And I hear people say this all the time. Again, to use a sports ball analogy, if you want to play defense and you're not defense, you don't get to go play defense and say, oh, but I just wanted to have fun. No, people are expecting you to fulfill a certain role. And if you can't have fun doing that, play a different game. Agreed. And my last thing, which I found, I thought was interesting, buyers versus players. Now, before you showed up on the scene, 
I was the only one with board games. I buy all the board games, I provide the tables, I provide the space, I provide my home. And now is there an expectation to everyone else who is playing these games and not purchasing any games to subsidize this this hobby at all? A number of people have raised this issue before, and I see where it's coming from, but really some people are actively involved in the hobby and are perfectly happy with owning next to zero games. And that's fine. You know, some people have the means but choose not to collect. I derive joy and pleasure from maintaining a collection, from curating games. We've, we've talked about this over the past couple of topics. And I really don't think it's anyone's responsibility to subsidize that particular choice I've made. Because the games that I get, I either get them because I want them, or if I get them because I think someone else is going to enjoy them, then that's on me. That No one, no one has ever asked me to get a game and then refused to help subsidize it. Some people are like, oh, if you find a copy of whatever, let me know and we can go in on it together. And then usually nine times out of ten, if I get it, I just get it. If I could easily see someone being abusive of that kind of relationship, right? If somebody started saying, you know, just dropping heavy hints, it's like, oh, wouldn't it be great if someone acquired a copy of whatever, and, you know, just started trying to manipulate people into getting games just so they can try them. But I've never seen that happen. No, I've never had any expectation of anyone I've invited or come over to give me anything. I've, like, exactly like you, I find great joy in collecting these games and playing them and introducing them to people. Say if you were pulled out. Say it's another hobby. Say if, I, I can't even come up with an example. Say There are other hobbies? There are other hobbies. Say it was uh, uh, scrapbooking, right? And scrapbooking is where is like logging your really, own board games on Board Game Geek, right? I actually have really no idea what scrapbooking is. To Fair enough. Truth. But it's like, say, if you came to someone, Everyone, send in your scrapbooking projects to Walker. You show up someone's house. They have all the, all the supplies there. You use all their supplies every week, one night, and you just keep showing up and using their supplies and doing this hobby. Would you personally not feel obligated to, you know, say, hey... This is obviously costing you some money. Why don't I chip in for the next scrapbooking package? I really don't know. So the only other hobby that is kind of based on consumption in, in, in a relative way that I know of is I know a number of knitters. And, you know, they acquire yarn and patterns. And that's actually it's actually very expensive to be a knitter because good quality yarn is very, very expensive. And then there's all the time of knitting it. So it's not a very economical way in a contemporary setting. Of It's far, far cheaper to have people in Malaysia make your sweaters and what have you than actually knitting them, to say nothing of socks. But there it's, it's a personal thing, right? You can't share yarn automatically. That's one of the great things about board games. You can share them with other people and they don't, with the, with the, marginal exception of some legacy games, they don't get used up. So it's perfectly shareable in that sense. If it were less shareable, if, it, if you know, based on your analogy, if board games were literally used up by other people using them, well, then maybe there would be a different thing. And then maybe we'd want to have a, a system whereby, you know, one person brings the games and everyone else brings the drinks or whatever. Not that we drink a lot while we're playing board games, but you get the idea. But that sounds terrible that there are hobbies where you just use things up. A paintball. Welcome to paintball. Oh dear lord! Things get used up very quickly in paintball. There, but yeah, but there again, it's the expectation that everyone brings their own brings or rents their own gear, right? True, but I mean, yeah. like, say if it was in in the same circumstances, say if you showed up every Saturday to a paintball field and the same guy let you use his gun and all his paint every sure. week, week after week, would you not feel you know? Anyway, I think we've covered. I think we've sure. been on this no, I, long I, enough. I hear you. It's a, it's an interesting way to think about things. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting topic. Yeah, that's all I got. What do you got? I've more than said my piece. 
without any appropriate invitation to do so, I, I waxed on about moral philosophy, so I wasted all your time and all our viewers' time. But then again, the shared social activity that we have, both in recording this and in releasing this, is that I waste everyone's time. So in a way, I've done a good thing. It's very nice. So thank you very much for joining us for So Very Well About Games. Just a slight reminder, next week we are going to be off. You will see us again in two weeks from now because we're on a summer schedule. In the interim, we'll be playing lots of games, scrapbooking up a storm, doing lots of paintball, and knitting like you would not believe. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker, sending your, all your scrapbooking ideas via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much once again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Scrapbooking, that's when you have a fight with a book, right? You scrap the book, no? You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.